as I was preparing today, I was thinking to myself, uh, you know, we're getting to the final, final phases where Jesus ascends to heaven and gives the Holy Spirit over to the, to the disciples. And uh, one of the things that it says is during this time, they were amazed and perplexed at many things happening. And I was thinking to myself, how many, how many people here like to see those like extreme street magicians? You know what I'm talking about? I think David Blaine is probably one of them, if you know David Blaine. Like, they do really weird and perplexing things in front of people, and they get completely amazed. Like, I didn't, I didn't click on the link, but I saw that one of them was on a recent uh, late-night show, sewing his lips together. Anyone see this? Sewing his lips together right in front of the camera, you know, and, and the people were amazed and perplexed. Or, you know, like, they, they'll, they'll come on the street and they'll come up to a bunch of people and they'll say, you know, pick a card, any card, and they'll do this thing. And it's, it'll be all a ruse because it has nothing to do with the cards. It has everything to do with the fact that they're going to get the person's earring into their coffee that they're drinking. It's amazing stuff. Have you, have you anyone else has seen, no one else has seen this stuff? Okay. Yeah, okay. It's, it's, it's. I would love to see some of this in person, but the things that they're able to do, like one guy, stick, I think this is David Blaine, he sticks something through here, you know, like a sharp thing goes all the way through his wrist, and you're like, you spend hours Googling how this happens, and people have their fan theories. People are amazed and perplexed, but some of the great religious leaders of the world also create this amazing, uh, amazed and perplexed. You're around them, and they amazed and perplexed their followers. And you think of um, Mother Teresa or Gandhi, or uh, Martin Luther King Jr., some of these great religious leaders of, of the last hundred years, and they amazed and perplexed their followers as well, think that they were able to do caring for the poor in such beautiful ways. And the difference between these two, I'm trying to draw a difference here, the difference between the street artists is you're amazed and perplexed and you're disturbed, and you have no idea how, you, how they've done it, and you feel like, like your world is just like confused. But the great religious leaders amaze and perplex you in a different way. They, they amaze and perplex you, and they make your, your, your chin almost, your chin come up a little bit. Like, they make you feel worth a million bucks. They help you know your deep worth. One is about the street musician and what they can do. The other is about humanity and lifting them up and, and, and the amazingness that can happen. Well, Jesus clearly is... Not a street performer, but he clearly, clearly is in the second category, and perhaps we might say as Christians the, the most amazing of them all. And so, you know, he comes to his disciples after he's raised up from the dead. They saw him die. They saw the nails go into his hand. They saw the spear go into his side. He was dead as dead could be. And then he, he comes back to life. He's raised up again, and he, he begins appearing to his disciples in different disguises. And they don't quite recognize him at first, but then when he says key words like he, he breaks a loaf of bread, that was his signature move. He breaks a loaf of bread. Oh, it's Jesus. Or he, they were fishing on the, the lakes of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee, and he comes and he tells them to, to cast their net on the other side of the boat after having fished all night long with no success. And they catch more fish than they, they could ever have imagined. They, it's Jesus. So he comes to them, and not only does amazing things and perplexes them, but uh, teaches them. He opens their mind to the scriptures, opens their mind to reality that the living God was with Jesus and in Jesus and that his kingdom is coming on earth and it's going to happen through them. And they're amazed and, and, uh, and uh, 
something amazing will happen next. After he's with them for 40 days, right in their sight, we're talking about this last week, he ascends to heaven and a couple angels show up and say, what are you guys staring off into space for? You got a job to do, let's get going here. And they're like, we just saw a guy go into heaven, give us a moment. You know, and so it's this amazing experience that they've had and they're perplexed and they don't know what to make of it. Uh, but what, what's going to happen next after this is going to be the most perplexing and amazing thing that happens to them. And we're going to get into the, the giving of the Holy Spirit today. And in particular, you know, Jesus during his ministry, during his life before he died, when he was teaching his disciples, he, would, he, he promised them something. He said, I'm going to go away from you so that you cannot hug me or, or sit close to me like you have been in these last three years. I'm going to my father. I'm going back to him. And you can't grasp onto me like you'd want to. I've given you each other for that. Um, but I'm going to be with you in a special way. When I go up, soon after I go up, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And it's going to be my very presence. And I've been for the last many weeks talking about what's, just what's possible with a church who's got their mind and hearts wrapped around the resurrection and just what it means for us. And I've said that it, it requires us to be totally vulnerable with each other, truly trusting each other, not being suspicious of each other's motives. That means truly leaning in on each other and sharing the deeper places. And I've talked about how this means that we all come to a place where, where we want to, to worship Jesus, but that's a journey. And we need one another to take that journey together. And sometimes when, I'm, when my faith wanes, I need yours. I need to lean on your faith. And that we need to be gentle with our faith journeys, especially when people who are caught in doubt in our, our two minds. And I've talked about uh, this amazing mission that we have to go out to the whole world and be witnesses, to give the, the world a confident and strong recommendation that Jesus is Lord and he's the the, the the true way and how we can get sleepy or we can get overzealous, but right down the middle is this missional Christianity. And you, after all this, you might be going, you're out of your mind. How is this possible? How are we going to do all these things? And you might be thinking, well, that's ni a nice pipe dream, Keith, but you know, your, your vision sometimes is too big for us. And, and this is where I say, on our own strength, there's no possible way we could do this stuff. On our own, and with, with us being in control of everything, we'd be, we'd be driving into the ditch left and right. But God gives us his Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, we can do things together that are unimaginable. And sometimes, I believe, churches today put the bar so low with what we can do because either we've forgotten that God's Holy Spirit is here empowering us, or two, we just don't even realize what's possible with, with the creator of the universe working through a, a humble community. So, Holy Spirit. God gives us his spirit, and um, he's with us. Now, one of the important things that I need to say right from the get-go here this morning is that uh, when Jesus goes into heaven, he, he goes into a, an unseen place. And I've got, we've got to unpack this a little bit, because for us in the Western world, we think of heaven as like Saturn, somewhere way up there that we can't get to, uh, and maybe it's even beyond our reach. Even if we went a billion light years, we wouldn't even get there. You know, heaven is a place that is away from here. Well, that's not the way Jesus saw it. That's not the way the book of Acts 
plays out. Jesus' spirit ascends to heaven, and then he's an actor for the rest of the rest of the book of Acts. I mean, he's there working still. So heaven is not this distant, inaccessible place. If you get, the, if you get your mind around the Jewish understanding of heaven and earth, heaven is more like the unseen side of God's good creation. We here on earth are the, the visible, perceptible, touchable side of God's good creation. And these two places were meant to work together in harmony. Heaven is my throne. I'm quoting a psalm here from the Old Testament. Heaven is my throne, says the Lord, and earth is my footstool. God's presence is in both. And then when we talk about new creation, where this is all heading, we're not just going to go zap into heaven and this place be destroyed. We're talking about heaven and earth finally coming back into unity. One writer put it like this, earth is the chalice and heaven is the wine. And it's meant to pour together and work together. So I love this picture because it depicts the early Christians. It took a couple hundred years for them to get these nice, nice buildings. But uh, here they were with the presence of Jesus still with them as they worship. Heaven is the unseen part. And so it's almost like if we could just flip a switch to see the, un, the, the, the unseen part of the world, we'd see things all around us that, um, that we would be surprised about. Heaven and earth are like an unseen and seen good side, sides of God's good creation, okay? We just have to really put our minds around that because we've been given such a, a distortion of what heaven is. So when we teach about this today, when we teach about the Holy Spirit coming, Jesus is like, I'm not going to be with you in the way that I have been, but something else will, and it will, won't be matter, but it will be spirit, and it will be able to fill you up, and it will fill this community up. And so when we get to the disciples after Jesus ascends to heaven, we hear that when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all in one place. This is 50 days after uh, Jesus rose from the dead. He spent 40 days with them teaching them. And he's like, guys, don't go anywhere. Something's about to happen. It took 10 more days on this Jewish feast of Pentecost for the Holy Spirit to come as Jesus promised. Now, Pentecost is, uh, I knew this picture would be dark. Pentecost is this festival that was in celebration of God coming down visibly, parting the veil, so to speak, between the unseen and seen worlds, coming down to give the Jewish people the Ten Commandments, standing on the, the mountain and speaking to them. And what's so funny about this, or interesting, is when God speaks audibly to hundreds of thousands of people, they're like, we don't want that. No, thank you. That's too scary. Talk to Moses. He'll tell us what it's about. And when Jesus comes and reveals God's presence, he's like, not only do you misunderstand that God's not a God to be terrified of, but he's a God of love and compassion. But I'm the fullness of it. And you can see me now. Anyway, so Pentecost was this uh, festival that the Jewish people for thousands of years celebrated uh, for God, God showing up. Um, and, and it was like a, a harvest festival, like midsummer harvest festival. The wheat had grown up and the barley had grown up and they had harvested some and they went and took it to Jerusalem and, and celebrated it for one day. So all the Jewish people were, were, uh, from, from all over the, the world had come to celebrate this festival 50 days after their Passover. Okay, so this is, this is where we're at, this festival. Everyone's around. Uh, Philo... Was a, was a Jewish writer during the time of uh, Jesus and Paul. Um, and 
he said this about the time when God had uh, revealed himself from Mount Sinai. He said, from the midst of the fire that streamed from heaven during Moses' time, way back in the book of Exodus, there sounded forth to their utter amazement a voice from heaven, for the flame had become articulate speech in the language familiar to all the audience. God spoke in a language that the Egyptians and the Israelites could both hear way back then, okay? So you're getting the, this, is the, this is the background for what, what everyone in the Jewish world was celebrating there. And so, so here we go, back with the book of Acts. When the day of Pentecost had come, the, the disciples were all together in one place, and suddenly, just like way back when, just like the day they were celebrating, from heaven, from the unseen realm, came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Okay, this is the perplexing, amazing moment where God's very, present come, very presence comes and descends on each of Jesus' followers. Okay, tongues of fire. I mean, this isn't anything like weird or special, but you light a, you light a, light a candle, right? And it's thick at the bottom and skinny at the top. That's basically, that's basically all this is saying. Like little, little candle wicks without the candles came descending down and sat upon each of them. And they were so amazed and so uh, utterly sort of filled with this amazing presence of God that they just began like speaking out loud and it, be, it came out like other languages. It's like an American being able to speak French fluently off the bat. Amazing, wouldn't it? We'd all be perplexed and amazed at that, wouldn't we? You know, it's like uh, they were able, they, 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 were, they weren't very learned, but they were able to speak all these languages. And so, uh, you know, in, in the Old Testament, this goes back as well, the Holy Spirit is this creating mysterious, not magical, but almost, almost more powerful than magic that you can ever imagine, creating uh, presence of God that gives wisdom to the people that it comes upon and gives knowledge, and the secrets of God's mysteries are opened in their mind. Uh, this is the Spirit, way back in the book of Genesis, hovering over the waters. And these guys are, and gals are going to get it. The, uh, the same opening of the mind and empowering of their of of their hearts, um, and uh, oh yeah, basically, you know, you put it this way: the Old Testament Spirit, the miraculous, life-giving presence, enabling someone to have wisdom, and sometimes extra strength and knowledge of God. I mean, when the Old Testament talks about the Spirit coming on Samson. Remember the story of Samson? Samson has this supernatural strength. Or when the Spirit came down upon David and his people, he could, they took an army of a few hundred and beat an army of thousands. I mean, this is the type of spirit that all of these early apostles were getting. Now, here's the thing. Uh, when, when they were in the house and this violent rushing wind sound, can you imagine, comes rushing through their house and tongues come down and they start speaking in different languages. Everyone who was there in Jerusalem celebrating the Pentecost says, heard what was happening. It was that profound that everyone from every corner of the city of Jerusalem heard this. And probably a good portion of them came to figure out, well, what's happening? This is unusual. 
says there are devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? And if you're in any Christian circles for any time, these next verses are going to be the most challenging to read. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia. We all struggle over these. If you're ever in a Bible study and you get this and it's your turn to read and you've got to read all these places, don't feel, just go for it. Uh, I'm going for it. I'm making up half of them today. Okay. Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, and now we're getting to like people who shouldn't be coupled together, people who are far away from each other and not, not the best of friends. Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. That's, that's the content. What were they speaking? They weren't just speaking gibberish. It was like every person from every people group were there, and they're like, we're learning things about God's mysteries that we never knew before. And not only that, but they're not only speaking in my language, they're speaking in my unique little dialect, my, my, my little language from my little corner of the world. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to this, to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they're filled, they're drunk. They're filled with new wine. They must be drunk. Now, there's a couple things to mention here about this. Um, speaking about God's deeds of power. The, the Holy Spirit, the, the thing about the Holy Spirit, what we come to learn about the Holy Spirit is this, it's a third person of God's, God's presence. This mysterious um, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father we know of the, as the Creator Father. And the, uh, the Son as the one who came and gave his life and was resurrected. But the Spirit, the Spirit's like known as the Shy One. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, it's personified as a woman. It's a sort of a, a female personification. And we know that God isn't male or female, but somehow mysteriously encapsulates them both. And yet, as we think about, as, as human beings try to understand God, God the Father is given to us as a male personification, and the Spirit is oftentimes given as a woman. So, uh, you know, this, this, um, this idea that, that uh, the Holy Spirit comes and, uh, upon and, and, uh, and speaks about God's deeds of power, uh, and, and oftentimes the Spirit is also the shy one, the one who is uh, sort of doing everything in all moments of life, and, um, and yet not seen, not felt, not heard. And oftentimes today, don't, you know, isn't that true? Like we, we wonder where God's presence is. We wonder what God is doing in our life. We can't see or feel him or her in this instance with the Holy Spirit. And, um, and, and yet, uh, you know, think of the person in your life who is the, is the greatest servant and yet is never thanked or seen or understood to be actually working. Someone who's, who's busy at work, serving other people, but never gets any of the credit. This is the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit who's always with us, always serving us, always protecting us, always transforming us. And, and, um, and these, these apostles are getting to it. And, and speaking about God's deeds of power uh, is, a way, is a way of saying that the Holy Spirit 
um, even when we're struggling the most, is always whispering into our ears what God is doing and what he has done. Uh, always in our doubts, in our, in our, when we're of double mind, when we're going, God, you know, I want to believe in you. I want to give my life to you. I want to trust you. But yet, here's the eight reasons, A, B, and C, why I can't and why I shouldn't. The Holy Spirit is always whispering, always answering, always giving, giving you new thoughts. Now, uh, they were, of course, amazed and perplexed at this. Uh, and some of them were just going, I don't know what this means. Like, we know we, we're here celebrating. It's almost like we're here celebrating the fact that way back when, God showed up in visible form to all those ancient people and gave them the Ten Commandments and created a new people of God. And yet, here, here, are, here is a, a group of Galileans who are speaking. What does this mean? What is this, how, do we, how do we make sense of this? And you can see that you know, Peter's going to get up and preach, and there's going to be like 3,000 Jewish people who become Christians. And what does this mean for those 3,000? This means that the fact that Jesus was the God's Messiah and was raised from the dead means that their life can be filled with new hope and new transformation and, um, and, and a new ability to, uh, to live their life to the full. And it made sense of their life like, like, like never before. What does this mean? And for us who are going this morning, like, what does this spirit mean for us? I, don't, I haven't thought of the spirit in, in ages. I haven't thought of what the spirit can do. What does this mean for us? It means that God has given us the words and the confidence and the ability to dream big, not only for our life. I mean, what are the things that we just dream about for our life? What are the things that, that are at the base of what we hope for ourselves? That God's got, this, God's got a dream for you as well. And, and he's going he's gonna to find, find a way to help us get there. Uh, but others sneered and said they're drunk. Now, if they were just out, like, dancing, half-naked, babbling on, we might think, okay, these are drunk people. But that's not what's happening. They're out there. They heard a great sound, and they're speaking audible languages in every tongue. Now, to go, they must be drunk, it's a stretch, okay? Like, that's someone who's like, I, I'm actually seeing what's happening here. I'm actually seeing what's going on. Uh, but I'm, I feel so cynical about what's happening, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, say that there, these, this, must be, this must have to do with inebriation. Uh, you know, I think sometimes we get to that place, too, where we're dreaming big, where we're going, what's possible? What can we do as a group of people? What can God do in our lives? And we're like, well, probably not that much. I mean, don't you know all the things that have gone wrong in the past and all the ways I've tried to change before and all the big problems we have? Uh, the spirit of cynicism, which t makes us to dream small, is the, is the wrong response to the Holy Spirit. The right response is to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dream big and, and see what God can do in my life. Now, uh, the Holy Spirit, when he comes down upon all of his followers, starts to uh, give them the confidence that they need to step out and to trust God. And I don't know if you guys know a, a writer named A.W. Tozer. Uh, he was a writer in the, in the mid-20th century. And there's this little book on, of sermons that he gives on the Holy Spirit. And I'm just going to read a little bit for us here because he says it much better than I could ever. 
So he starts off in, in this sermon talking about the Holy Spirit being a person. We oftentimes think of the Holy Spirit being like an energy or the Holy Spirit being this, this hovering type of weird thing we don't quite understand. But Tozer's going to say, no, the Holy Spirit's a person. So here he goes. He says, he says it like this. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a person, not enthusiasm, not courage, not energy, not the personification of all good qualities like Jack Frost is the personification of cold weather. Actually, the Holy Spirit is not personification of anything. He's a person, just the same as you are a person. And he has the same qualities of a person. He has substance, but not material substance. He has individuality. He's one being and not another. He has a will and intelligence. He has hearing. He has knowledge and sympathy and ability to love and see and think. The Holy Spirit can hear, speak, desire, grieve, and rejoice. The Holy Spirit is a person. And the Holy Spirit can communicate with you and can love you. He can be grieved when you resist and ignore him. He can be quenched as any friend can be shut up if you turn on him when he is in your house as a guest. Of course, he will be hushed into hurt silence if you wound him. And we can wound the Holy Spirit. I mean, these are, these are all scriptural references to what we can do to relate with the Holy Spirit. And I love, I love the emphasis that the Spirit's not just this, you know, maybe a shy person, might be a person who doesn't demand us to pay attention to him or her, or both. I don't know how you, how you think about it. But the Holy Spirit's... Uh, the Holy Spirit is, is with us, and not just as someone sitting on the sidelines, like, ineffected by us. The Holy Spirit's a person who's here and can be grieved and can be uh, related with. Now, Tozer goes on, and we'll read, we'll read one more quote here. Tozer goes on to talk about the Holy Should we be afraid of this person? I mean, it's the Spirit of God's presence. Should we be afraid of this Spirit? Tozer says, no, when Jesus promised that he would give a comforter, the Holy Spirit's promise was that uh, it would be Jesus' very spirit in a mysterious way. So think of Jesus. Think of Jesus, the one who came to a person, a woman caught in adultery who was about to be shamed in front of the community and protected her and, uh, and caused the uh, hypocritical group of men who were going to uh, stone her to recognize their own sin. Think of the Jesus, the one who, uh, who chose not the religious elite of the day to, uh, to be his followers, but fishermen, and average everyday people. Think of the Jesus who said of himself, I am humble of heart and compassionate and gracious. If you have heavy burdens and heavy things that you're carrying in your life, come to me uh, and I will give you rest. This is like the person that person in life that you most would want to be around. This is like the friend who will listen and be empathetic and understand you the most. This is the friend who will see you and know you and won't let you wallow away in your own self-pity, but help you to grow and shape and change as a person. This is, the Holy, this is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is safe. And uh, Tozer says this, Jesus was the most winsome, the most loving, the most kindly, the tenderest, the most beautiful character ever that ever lived in the world. 
He was demonstrating the Spirit. And that's the way the Spirit is. When you think of the Holy Spirit, you will think of him as gracious, loving, gentle, and kind, just like our Lord Jesus Christ himself. I'm just going to keep reading this because it's so good. Um, he goes on a little bit to talk about how we can grieve the Spirit, how we, how we can ignore the Spirit, quench the Spirit, and grieve it. And here's what he says. Uh, suppose you had a 17-year-old son who began to go bad. He rejected your counsel and wanted to take things into his own hands. Suppose that he joined up with a young stranger from another part of the city and they got into trouble. You were called down to the police station. Your boy and another boy whom you had never seen sat there in handcuffs. You know how you'd feel about it. You would be sorry for the other boy, but you don't love him because you don't know him. With your own son, your grief would penetrate your heart like a sword. Only love can grieve. If those two boys were sent off to prison, you might pity the boy who didn't, you didn't know, but you would grieve over the boy you knew and loved. A mother can grieve because she loves. If you don't love, you can't grieve. And so when the scripture says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, it is telling us that God loves us so much that when we insult him, he is grieved. When we ignore him, he is grieved. When we resist him, he is grieved. And when we doubt him, he is grieved. Thankfully, we can please him by obeying and believing. When we please him, he responds to us just like a pleased father or loving mother responds. He responds to us because he loves us. The tragedy and the woe of the hour that is that we neglect the most important one who could possibly be in our midst, the Holy Spirit of God. And then in order to make up for his absence, we have something to do to keep up our own spirits. I remind you that there are churches so completely out of the hands of God that if the Holy Spirit withdrew from, from them, they wouldn't find out about it for months. I said this once before in a message, and the next day a woman called me and said that she'd been visiting our service. I belong to another church, and I heard you say that there are churches where the Holy Spirit could desert them, and they would never find it out, she said. Then she added, I want you to know that this has happened in our church. We have rejected him so consistently in our church that he's gone. He's no longer there. Her voice was tender, and there was no malice or criticism at all. I don't know whether she was right, for I doubt whether the Holy Spirit of God ever leaves a church completely. But he can go to sleep, so to speak, like the Savior who was asleep in the hinder part of the ship. He can be so neglected and so ignored that he cannot make himself known, and this can go on and on. Let me assure you that this is the most important thing in the world, that this blessed Holy Spirit is waiting now and can be present with you this minute. Jesus, in his body, is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, interceding for us. He will be there until he comes again. But he said he would send another comforter, the Holy Ghost, his Spirit. We cannot be all that we ought to be for God. If we do not believe and appropriate the fact that Jesus said, the comforter will be my representative, and he will be all that I am. Some pretty good stuff, huh? Uh, reminding us that uh, the Spirit is a person. The Spirit is more than our own thoughts. You know, when we have thoughts during the day that inspire us and lift us, and we know it couldn't be us, we know the Holy Spirit is ministering to us, speaking, working, drawing us closer to God. The Spirit is more than our own thoughts. 
and that we should not therefore do life on our own. I think this is the biggest, the sharpest edge for me, the, the biggest point. Uh, if we want to be a resurrection church, people taking seriously our call, we cannot do it on our own. We cannot muscle the strength to figure it out with our own minds and our own strategies. We need God's Holy Spirit to be living and alive and awake and dwelling in our midst. And the biggest way we do that is we turn over control of our life and our dreams and everything to the Holy Spirit. We, we, we orient our lives and shape it in a way where our projects and our own missions and our own desires become secondary to what God wants for us. We learn to listen with our ears of what the Holy Spirit is saying. And we give him control, give the Spirit control. We should not do life on our own. And if, friends, if, you, if you're like, I haven't thought of God in months, or if I haven't consulted God and what I should do in my life in months, the Spirit can you know, stay there, but oftentimes it's just like a shy, shy person just waiting in the corner for us to come back and to, to learn. So we cannot do life on our own. We need constantly to learn how to stay in tune and obey and follow the Spirit of God in our life because the Spirit's here. The Spirit's with us. It hasn't gone anywhere. Um, and, and ultimately, we remember that the Spirit changes us. One person told me once that the Spirit of God has the hardest job in all of the universe convincing human beings that they're not always as great as they think they are. <laughs> Because the Spirit changes us, the Spirit grows us, the Spirit uh, challenges us. And, um, you know, and, and as we go forward, we remember that what happened after, uh, after the, the, right after the disciples got the Holy Spirit, right after these tongues happened, and uh, people came from every, every nation to, to hear. And Peter, the, the rock upon which Jesus chose to build his church, the one who had denied him and was ashamed of him, and yet who came... Uh, came back to him and was, was embraced by Jesus' loving forgiveness, uh, got up in front of people from all nations and gave one of the most amazing speeches about Jesus, one of the most amazing sermons that we have recorded from the early church. And that's in Acts chapter 2. If you want to read it, it's in Acts chapter 2. But he gets up and he looks into the power structures of the day to the, uh, to the city councilmen and says to them, you are the one who killed Jesus. But God raised him from the dead. And they were so cut to the heart. He was so eloquent and he was so persuasive that they were cut to the heart. And they said, what should we do? And he said, well, baptize. Be baptized and bow your knee to King Jesus. And 3,000 were added to the number of the disciples that day. And they were able to do something so much bigger than they could ever have dreamed. And so, friends, as we think about us and what we have to do in this city, and all of the big challenges in front of us, and all of the legitimate questions we have, and all of the faith issues that we have, and all of the things that we need to overcome, and all of the hard relationships that uh, make us just want to trust, trust only the people that we like or know, for all of the ways that we want to, uh, to, to, to dream small and to, um, yeah, and to just sort of recoil back into our own little corner, the Resurrection Church teaches us uh, that there's a worldwide mission that we can be part of and that we can be filled with the transformation and the confidence that, that God needs of us to go out and proclaim Jesus' lordship 
and to show the people around us just what we mean by new creation. So God is a healing presence. He's uh, someone who's with us as we worship. Even if we can't see him, even if we don't get little ghostly outlines of Jesus. I don't know, have you ever seen Jesus hover around your living? Even if we don't get the visible, tangible manifestations of God, he's with us. His spirit is with us and empowering us. And, uh, and we can go out and do far bigger things than we could ever imagine. So with that, uh, I'm going to invite us to uh, once again come to the table. Um, this bread here and this juice is uh, a practice that we do every week because Jesus tells us to do it every week. He says, I, my, my body was broken for you and my blood was shed for you to make this all possible. And I'm calling you to come after me. Now, if you want to go back and listen to the last 14 or 15 sermons, <laughs> you'll recognize that what I've, what I've just done here is I've said, uh, you know, what does it mean for you to be a follower of Jesus in a life that, that can be filled with so many um, pleasures and so many um, thorns? You know, go back to, to, back to the many chunks of sermons I did. How do you live your life personally? If you're going to follow Jesus, that's a bunch of sermons about consumerism and about discipleship and about his teachings. And I'm just finishing off now what it means to be Jesus' followers together. Because we're called individually to be disciples and we're called as a group of people to bring his uh, kingdom just a little more into the world. And God, do we need you for all of this. And so if you're feeling inadequate or overwhelmed or unsure or not knowing what to do, uh, this table is the greatest place to start. Bring your questions to God. I mean, there's two more songs here. There's plenty more time for us to bring our questions to God, bring our concerns, uh, bring our faith or our doubt or whatever it is this morning that God has sparked up in you as a symbolic way to say, Jesus, even if I don't understand, I choose to follow. Uh, you are my Lord. So, uh, friends, this table is set and everybody here in this room is welcome.